Let's, uh, let's return now to our seats and take our Bibles in hand. This morning is our first Sunday of the month where we celebrate the Lord's table. And James 5 is an appropriate text, uh, kind of an unlikely text, though, to usher us into our communion time. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let me read our text for us. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is a text that continues and extends our theme of the sovereignty of God, specifically God's righteous rule over suffering people. If you're like me and you look around the world and you look around our nation, you look around community or even your own home, there are times when you try to reconcile and wrestle with how does God's sovereign rule gel with what I'm going through? Or how does God's sovereignty, his, his kingship, his dominion, his plan, how does that work and gel with what's going on in our society around us or even in our world? How does the, the fact that today in our world 23,000 children will die from starvation and preventable diseases, how does that gel with God's plan and his rule in his plan. How does that work? God is a God who cares about the cries of needy people. So what's happening when God allows for certain things to take place? What about social abuse or or domestic violence or scenarios where you hear about homes that are wrecking and melting, perhaps even your own home life or or your own personal life is falling apart. And sometimes you you can ask the question, can't you? How does that work in terms of God's plan for my life? Does Does he sort of turn a blind eye and a deaf ear in some situations and look the other way instead of intervening with grace? How does that work out? Do you ever struggle to reconcile that? Because here I think we find some answers to questions that are that potent and that severe. Perhaps for some of you, you've been following in the news a pastor. He's uh, known as a Christian pastor in Iran who is on trial right now. He has two boys. He's married, and um, he's been under arrest since 2009 and sort of has gone through a series of um, court hearings um, for his evangelizing of Muslims to his faith. And they've sort of ramped it up to, on the Supreme Court level where they're accusing him now of apostasy, where he's moved from being a Muslim to being um, known as a Christian. And so that is um, sort of the, 
the situation where he would face execution unless he recants or turns from his faith. Now, I, I think some of his views are aberrant or different from ours in our Christian um, faith. However, this is a man that you sort of look at, and our world is kind of watching because Iran has not done this to someone for 20 years, at least publicly. And everybody's kind of watching to see what's going to happen. And our hearts go out to him and his family because we want justice, and we know God wants justice. But listen, here's the, here's the sort of answer from God's word to why it seems like God is not giving justice when people are abused, and yet he rules. God is ruling in his way and in his timetable. God will mete out justice for all of those oppressors, all of the people who are unrepented in this life. But perhaps justice will not be served until the beginning of eternity, the end of time. So justice will be served, but it's in God's timetable in his way. You know, the same struggle of James 5 is found in Psalm 73. Can I just invite you to look back there? This is a psalm of Asaph, and it's a very familiar psalm. But I just kind of want to trip through it real quick because the psalmist is looking at people who were oppressive and who were wealthy and who were being sinful towards the poor and needy. And he was asking the same question. He says, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled He's saying, I nearly slipped. I almost lost it. Why? Because there were, verse 3, envious. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw their prosperity. Verse 4, they were fat and sleek. In other words, they had everything. Verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They're proud, they're violent, their eyes were swelling through their fatness. In other words, they had everything that they ever wanted. They scoff, verse 8, and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They're oppressive, they're arrogant, verse 9. And then in verse 10, it says, he says, they get away with it. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. In verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They're even mocking God. In other words, they're saying, we're getting off scot-free and God... God's not doing anything about it. And then in verse 13, it was as if the psalmist Asaph is having a a crisis in his own religion. He's saying, all in vain have I kept my heart clean. In other words, is my faith just a big sham and washed my hands in innocence for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Look at verse 16. This is the turning point in the psalm. This is how Asaph stayed sane. It says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be to me a wearisome task. Look at this. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to Ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away 
utterly by terrors. And then the end of the psalm is the familiar portion. Whom have I, verse 25, in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This heart beat is found in James chapter 5, if you'll turn back there. James 5 is a prophetic window into the future. This is like the time that we just read where the psalmist went into the sanctuary, went into the temple of God, and was able to see a a vision, a window into eternity. He was able to discern the end of those who were oppressive to the poor, those who were mocking people of God. And here in James 5, James wants to open up that same prophetic window. James is speaking here to unbelievers in James 5, 1 through 6. And you might say, well, that's interesting or kind of strange because he's been talking to the church thus far. But he shifts gears because he wants to comfort these poor Christians who had been dispersed all over the Mediterranean area, kicked out of Palestine. They were struggling to make ends meet, and they were being ripped off and defrauded and oppressed by wealthy landowners. And so James gives sort of a public rebuke of the rich in front of a poor congregation. He's using a technique called apostrophe where you address an audience that's not really present to comfort the audience that really is there. And so he's comforting the poor listeners by rebuking out loud the rich oppressors. Let me just say something up front. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. In fact, there's everything right about being wealthy if you've earned it under God's blessing with integrity and skill. We're all made in the image of God and God distributes blessing through wealth. The Proverbs talk about that. And also Deuteronomy chapter 28 talks about that. Moses, as he was sort of commissioning the, uh, the children of Israel into the promised land, he was saying that you will... You are given the skill to make wealth by God. But in the midst of our making wealth as believers, there are unbelievers who make wealth by injustice. And we're not talking about an injustice that's done where someone just looks the other way over an IRS law or someone fudges something here and there. We're talking about oppressive landowners in this context, both Roman and Jewish, who were taking day laborers and giving them a job and they'd work all day to make ends meet and bring money home so that they could buy food for that day to feed their family. And then the landowner would say, no, I'm not going to pay you. That's what's going on. In other words, these landowners were starving people and starving children so that they could stuff their pockets with coins and fill their lives with luxury. It was a wickedness that deserved this level of rebuke. This is a prophet-like rebuke. This is very much like the book of Amos. Amos is the minor prophet that's known for rebuking in the name of social justice, what God cares about deeply. 
where God hears the cries of the children who are oppressed. Amos chapter 3 verse 10 is where God condemns those who store up violence and robbery. Those, Amos 5, those who trample on the poor, those who tax unjustly, those who build houses that no one will live in. Amos 8, 4 through 7, he says, you bring the poor of the land to an end. The Lord has sworn I will never forget any of their deeds. That's the God that we serve. We dare not enter into any practice like this sort of rich oppressor. Where you look the other way when someone's in need. Where you withhold your heart or your goods from people that you know have a specific need. In James chapter 2, we talked about this, verse 6. James rebukes the rich man. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 2.16, James 2.16. You don't want to be the one who says to them... Who, who lack clothing and daily food. Oh, go in peace, be warm and be filled. We don't need to be like that. And James is giving a, a very strong, all-encompassing rebuke on people who oppress needy people, hard-working people, and rip them off. He's saying that does not go unpunished. It actually stores up wrath against them. Again, let me just accent, put an accent on the fact that it's not wrong for you to make a living. If we don't work, we shouldn't eat, according to 1 Thessalonians. We're supposed to take care of our families. If we don't, we're worse than an infidel. Job, Abraham, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, they all had means, they all had wealth. Paul, when he was um, talking to Philemon over um, Onesimus, the slave that had run away, he's saying, look, just put it on my bill, put it on my account and receive that Onesimus slave back to yourself. I have some means for you. It's important for us to make wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18, God gives you the power to make wealth. But wealth can corrupt. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, according to 1 Timothy, Right? You serve God or you serve money. Money can so quickly become an idol of the heart. Money that you either have or money that you wish that you had, right? Abraham, he had money. He was wealthy. And then he sort of divided some of that wealth to Lot. And where Abraham was godly with his wealth, Lot was not. He was ungodly. Money gurus today will say, listen, if you'll just obey these sort of budgetary laws, I've got no problem with keeping a budget and being strategic and investing. But they say, look, if you'll do that, money and, and the control of money in your life will create all kinds of happy things that will circulate in your life. Your well-being will be based on how well you complete your budget, right? You hear that message often? Well, the Bible's message is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. In other words, where your heart is, there your treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. So you treasure Christ, and guess what? If you do that, you'll probably be making wise choices with your money after all. So it's Christ first, not money first. So here we have a rebuke. And uh, I sort of am framing these outline points like this. Uh, these are four contradictions between self-perception and reality. That's kind of a heady sort of 
tagline for the outline. Let me just explain it. Four contradictions between how these rich, oppressive, sinful money hoarders, there are three contradictions between how they're perceiving themselves and what is actually reality about them. Four contradictions. Here's the first one. Hoarders are convinced their future is secure. James wants to contradict that idea, that self-perception. Hoarders are convinced their future is secure. He says, come now, same lead in as verse 13 of chapter 4. Come now, listen up, you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This one commentator said, look, the miseries that are coming, the judgment that's coming is like a hurricane cloud that's waiting to sweep people who are unrepented like this away. They're blind to it. He's saying, listen, rich people, you need to wake up to the reality that you are already under a condemnation unless you repent. And as unrepented people, this is coming for you. Wealth is so interesting, isn't it? Just when you think you've sort of stored money away, something comes up. And as one friend of mine once said, the Lord, you know, he had plans for that money all along. It's fleeting. The Proverbs talks about how our money, it it kind of sprouts wings and flies away from us. We dare not worship money and make it an idol where it would harden our hearts away from God. These people are under a judgment where they are so hardened that they're sort of sealing their fate. But I think it's instructive for us as Christians not to be hardened about our money. Money is something that is a tool. It's something that we are responsible for, but it's not the end. It's not the goal. It's a means to an end, to bless people, right? To worship God through our giving, to advance the kingdom, to feed our children, to feed poor people. We have to give it up. On Friday, I had the privilege of preaching the funeral of Hugh Parker, um, Elder Dave Parker's father, who went to be with the Lord and his wife, Berta, here this morning. And I was expressing to the congregation how overjoyed I was to be able to share a few thoughts from God's word on their behalf because Hugh Parker was a man who loved Christ. And I only knew him in his final years, but those were some of the best years to know him because people who are so affixed on going to heaven, they've already left the allurements of the world. And he was hooked to an oxygen tank typically or in a wheelchair And it seemed like he was limited when you first saw him, but he was unlimited in his spirit. It's because he wasn't clinging to anything that the world would offer. He wasn't bound. And as believers, this is a call for us to live in contradiction to these kinds of people. They thought their future was secure, but really it isn't. It's like the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, you remember that parable? He had Lazarus who was the poor man in this life, and then when he went to heaven, he was wealthy. And the rich man who had everything in this life went to hell, and he was in torment. It was the great inversion. Verse 2, actually back to verse 1, weep and howl. I just want to point that out. These words are onomatopoeic. They they describe they're described in terms of how they sound when you speak them. In other words, these are words of people who should be shrieking about their condition. 
They should be bursting into tears because of their plight and what they've earned for themselves by hurting people. The very money that they're storing up for their future comfort is what is condemning them. All right, number two. They thought their future was secure, and it wasn't. And secondly, hoarders believe their wealth is stable when it isn't. Three kinds of wealth are mentioned here. It says your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and then your gold and silver have corroded. Three kinds of wealth. This is Middle Eastern categories of wealth. First of all, you have food, which is grain and corn. Then you have, you have uh, garments, which were sort of status symbols of who you were in the culture by what you wore. And then lastly, you have precious metals like silver and gold. And three words of decay go with each of these categories of wealth. The first word is rotted, verse 2. In other words, the food that you're storing up has rotted. You thought that you had food and it has rotted in your midst. If you go back to Luke chapter 12, I just want to point Um, One thought out there, we've looked at this. This is a parable of the rich fool who was hoarding up um, all kinds of grain for his future. He had no thought of the fact that God was going to knock on his door that night and call him into eternity. Verse 13 of Luke 12 is where Jesus was walking along and someone in the crowd said, Hey, uh, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Isn't that kind of funny? Talk about putting the preacher of preachers on the spot. You know, hey, Jesus, can I leverage you for a moment? My brother, he won't give me half of his inheritance. Can you, like, deal with that for me? Man, that's kind of weird. Well, Jesus says, well, I'll take this opportunity to teach you really where your heart should be after all. And so he gives the parable of verse 16, uh, the land of the rich man. He had plenty that was produced. And he said, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? So he tears down his barns and builds other ones. And he says, I'll do that so I can in my later years relax, eat, drink and be merry. And God says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, now look at this, and is not rich toward God. That's the point. We've got to be rich towards God. It takes discipline. It takes work. You've got to take your eyes off of yourself. You've got to take your eyes off of the idols of your heart. You've got to take your eyes off of things that you say, you know, if I had that, that would make me happy. That would satisfy And you have to sort of throw that off and replace it with Christ. And say, look, my heart, my treasure needs to be vertical. And sometimes it's important for you to give things out to people and meet their needs in tangible ways as a discipline to get your heart right. Sometimes people go, you know, I don't want to give in the offering plate as it's passed by because my heart's not right. Well, repent, give, and then your heart, you know, can be brought along in that, right? Don't use that as an excuse, Our hearts often warm up after we're serving, after we're giving, after we're doing, in the midst of that. And James is trying to shock the rich who would hear this message about their fate. And at the same time, he's trying to comfort these day laborers, these people who, they didn't have much to give. They're just surviving, but they're seeing that their wealth and their inheritance is awaiting them 
in heaven. Well, the second kind of um, wealth is garments here. And garments were, they were wealth. They were like the wealth that Joseph inherited in the Old Testament, the coat of many colors, um, the coat with long sleeves, however you take that um, translation. Also, he gave cloaks to his brothers later when he was second in command over um, Egypt in Genesis 45. Achan, remember the sin of Achan where he, um, they were sort of um, looting AI and they were taking over the land in the Old Testament. And Achan, he saw the cloak of Shinar as one of the treasures that he wanted to hoard for himself and he was stoned for that sin. It kind of gives some importance to Jesus' words where he says, look, if someone comes to you and asks you for your tunic, give them your cloak also. It was a very important gift. It was an important symbol of security in your life because a cloak back then, it protected you from all of the elements. Paul even testified that when he was in Ephesus, he did not covet anyone's money or their clothes. So when James says, listen, you're putting a lot of stock in your wealth, your food and your clothing. But guess what? Your clothing, it's as if it's already moth-eaten in God's eyes. It's as sure as ruined already. You know, as a, a father of six kids, I watch a lot of things in my life digress very, very quickly. A lot of things. I mean, you know, I used to keep my carpet clean. And when I gave that up, man, what joy filled my heart, you know? It's amazing, you know, scratched furniture and things. I used to have a car that, you know, was a clean car. And when I gave that up, you know, it was amazing. But it is. It's a real discipline to just invest in the right way. And as my wife often reminds me, the real investment for your life is your children in your home. It's easy to miss the blessings of people around you, whether you still have kids at home or you have the family of God for you to invest in and relationships. And those times are what are meaningful. Those are what matter. Those investments, those relationships that you have are the keys to satisfaction in your life and ministry. And they're sort of the milestones of, of what you did in this life. Not getting more money or getting more prominence or, you know, opportunity. That's not what life is about. I was thinking also, I read this uh, this week, that the, the lowest 5% income pe- of people who make um, the lowest 5% income in the church, they're typically the ones who give the most proportionately in the church. Why is that? I think it's because people who live with a stretched income, they know how to trust God <laughs> better. Because they're challenged to continue to trust the Lord as they're stretched. And so they live comfortably there, trusting God and giving. And they enjoy the blessing that they see when they do. Well, wealth is not stable. It's also um, not stable in terms of coinage. Gold and silver, verse 3, it's corroded. Now, some people would say, look, gold and silver, silver, if you know about those elements, you know that those metals do not corrode. And so James must be wrong here. Some people will say, well, the coins back then, silver and gold coins, they were, they were mixed with some impurities, and so they would rust eventually. But I think really what James is doing here is he's pointing out two kinds of metals that in this life are imperishable, but in God's eyes and in God's economy in the future, they're going to melt before our eyes. 
where you're grabbing for the gold, you're grabbing for what you have, and then money talks in the future. And what is it saying? It's saying you shouldn't have put your trust there. And actually, the money turns against the wealthy oppressor. Look at this. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. It's like you're in a court of law and the money is put on the stand and it's saying, ha ha, you shouldn't have put your trust in me. And then it turns poisonous and it says it will eat your flesh like fire. It's as if the corrosion, the rust, or it, that's a synonym for poison. It could be poison that's eating your body from the inside out. And it's a picture of hell. This is a picture of hell. Eating your flesh like fire. The sad realities of hell is that it's forever, it's bodily, it's physical, it's punishment from God, and worst of all, it's something you're consciously aware of throughout all of eternity. That's the most horrific thought of hell, I think. And those who are oppressive and are not repenting are storing up this kind of future wrath and judgment. And they're tempting God. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. When are the last days? You know what? The last days are right now. It began at Pentecost when Peter preached the sermon saying, in the last days, according to Joel, the Holy Spirit will be poured out into our lives and we are the church. And from that sermon on, we as the New Testament church are experiencing the last days. In other words... The Messiah came at the first advent and he rose and is at the right hand of the Father and we're waiting for the culmination of the end times with Jesus' return at the second advent to take us home. These are the last days. Things are rolling forward to eternity. And so if you are in this category of extorting people and abusing people and hurting people, then you're basically shaking your fist in God's face in the last days, right before he's coming to do business here on earth, both in judgment and wrath and also redemption with his people. That's what James is talking about. Let's look at the third category. The third category here, the third contradiction. Um, First of all, these hoarders, they thought their future was secure. It wasn't. They thought their wealth was stable. It isn't, and they thought their reputation, thirdly, was safe, and it isn't. It isn't. Their reputation is not safe. Look at verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It's a picture of the money that's hoarded in the pockets of these people that are ripping people off people that worked for them, people that needed money to eat, that money is burning a hole in their pockets and crying out to God like the blood of Abel on the ground where Cain, his brother, had slain him. It was crying out against Cain. This money is crying out against these hoarders. Not only is the money crying out, but also the cries, look at verse 4, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. The harvesters themselves have a, a way to reach the ear of God. It's kind of an interesting thought. You know, the, the day laborer was sort of on the, the lowest end of the spectrum in terms of the social scale. But that day laborer had the ear of God. 
You better believe that the heart cry of the children who are abused and starving and diseased are heard by God around the world. God hears their cry. God welcomes people who are lowly and hurting, who are poor in this world into his kingdom by his grace. That's the message of James chapter 2. Do you remember that? James chapter 2, verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Don't underestimate the grace of God as it works and intervenes in the lives of people who are needy, who are downtrodden, who are in need of help. God hears them. No one is too downtrodden to be beyond the reach of God's help. He's called here the Lord of hosts, by the way. That that means that God is the Lord of all the armies. He's the Lord of all the stars. But specifically, he's the Lord of all the angels. And I think this is an allusion to how God will return with his mighty army one day to slay the nations with his angels accompanying him in flames of fire, as 2 Thessalonians talks about. Jesus is going to come back with a two-edged sword extending from his mouth and slaying the nations with the breath of his words. And that's what this is talking about. The Lord of hosts will exact judgment on their behalf. All right. Well, these hoarders, they thought their future was secure. They thought their wealth was secure. They thought their reputation was safe, and it wasn't. And then lastly, these hoarders believe their comfort is justified when it isn't. They thought they were comfortable and it's justified because it's just what you can accumulate. It's the kind of life that you can give yourself, but it really wasn't justified. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Stop there. It's the idea that Rich people, they're so blind to what they're doing that they're just fattening themselves up like the the fat pig that's going to be slaughtered for the feast. It's kind of a gross idea, but it really matches the idea of judgment where people are sort of, they're just so self-absorbed and self-consumed with materialism and so ignorant of the heart cry of people who are in need of help that they're just setting themselves up to be the main course on the day of judgment. And the needy people, by contrast, will be invited instead to the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will welcome in those people to eat and sup with him for all of eternity. It's luxury and self-indulgence. Do those terms sound familiar in our culture? I mean, I, I heard somebody say that, you know, our lowest class here in the in the United States is the middle class in Europe. I mean we we have it very very good as a nation still. And it's easy for us to be ensnared. It's easy for me to be sort of just drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid of our culture in terms of what we should expect for ourselves from day to day. It's it's probably important for us to ask ourselves, what is it that gets us bent out of shape when it's taken from us? Or some comfort is stalled for a few moments or a few weeks. Something's taken out of your life. Something's not working. You know, some appliance is broken. And we're all falling apart because we think we deserve more. Where instead we should be 
thankful for what God gives us, and we should be concerned with giving out as much as providing for our own family. Well, finally, verse 17. So, I'm sorry, verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Who's this talking about? I think, again, this is just the final word of rebuke on the oppressors who have condemned and figuratively have murdered poor people, people who are defenseless, people who can't take care of themselves. You're starving them, James is saying. But it could also be an allusion to Christ here. I don't want to totally discount that idea. The righteous one or the righteous person of verse 6 is a title for Jesus Christ in Scripture. The righteous one. Jesus Christ. And even if James isn't talking about Jesus specifically, if you ever thought of a person who was rich, who became poor on our behalf, who was abused and nailed to a cross for our sins, you think of Jesus. He's the preeminent example, the one who stands at the top of the list as one who was condemned and murdered and righteous and did not resist and died and then rose again. It's what we're going to celebrate now as we go to the Lord's table. What I would invite you to do is just bow your heads for a time of silent meditation. Seek the Lord and sort of empty your heart out before him and um, seek his forgiveness. Perhaps some of you have unconfessed, unrepentant sin towards other people or specifically directed towards God. Maybe you're angry with God. Maybe you're being victimized and oppressed and hurt and abused and extorted and you've stored up bitterness in your heart. And I would just exhort you to let those things go and bring those to the cross where grace can be found recognizing that God will exact judgment and he's the avenger and we're not. The men would come forward. I'd invite them now to begin to distribute the bread. I'm going to use the take-home points as prompts to prompt our meditation of the cross. The first point I want to point out, and men, just distribute the bread now. We worship God for he has delivered us from impending judgment. We're free.
Well, this uh, wafer you have in your hand is a symbol of the body that Jesus gave as the sacrifice on our behalf. He is the sacrificial lamb that was perfect and spotless. He's the ceremonial fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrifices that were done before him. And once he died, he confirmed that symbol and was seated at the right hand of God where there would never need to be a sacrifice given for sins again because Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. The second point I want to bring up on on the screen, we worship God for he has given us an eternal inheritance. You're wealthy as a believer. You're rich towards God. 1 Peter 1, 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's partake together. If the men now will distribute the cup, we'll continue to meditate on the cross. Well, on the night of Passover, Jesus raised a cup and said, this cup is a symbol of the new covenant in Christ's blood. And the transition from Passover to the Lord's table was made at that point. This is what we celebrate in the New Testament church. The sealed commitment that we are in Christ, we are united with him for all of eternity. It is all based upon the point three I want to emphasize. We worship God for his son who became poor so we could become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We're rich towards God. 
for his glory. Let's take together. Father, we thank you that we can commune with you around the Lord's table. This is truly a love feast where we gather as your people to commemorate, to remember, to exult in the victory that was won for us 2,000 years ago. Lord, we thank you that you sent your son and he obeyed to become impoverished as a carpenter's son and yet a king. And Lord, we worship him this morning and we anticipate worshiping him with full release one day for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me